Coming up on this week's show, voiceover artist Darian McLean and author Jenna Scott join us. Plus, we wish happy birthday to Erwin Allen. Welcome to the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for readers and writers of gay romance fiction. If you can read it, write it, watch it, or listen to it, these two guys are going to talk about it. Now, here are your hosts, Jeff Adams and Will Knauss. Welcome to episode 36 of Jeff and Will's Big Gay Fiction Podcast. I'm Jeff from jeffadamswrites.com. And I'm Will from willknauss.com. How are you doing this week? I am fine. Thank you for asking. Excellent. Um, <clears throat> I guess I will return the favor and ask how you are. <laughs> Good, thank you. I was, uh, I was I was searching. You you could probably hear the gears turning in my head. I'm like, ah, uh, something funny, something clever. No, nothing happened. Sorry. Should we go buy a sound effect to put into that? <laughs> that would be hilarious. I'll, I'll see Although if I... we'd have to use it way too much <laughs> whenever I talk. Uh, so, once again, how are you? I'm good. It was it was not a bad week this week. Good. Day job stabilized a little bit, got mm. some writing stuff done. We did lots of podcast recording mm-hmm. uh, for the GRL tour, for yes. some future author uh, interviews, and for some contributor spots. So it was a good week uh, for podcast recording. Yay for us. woo <laughs> Well, and yay for the audience because they'll hear it all in the next in the coming weeks. Yeah, uh, got, I mentioned writing. Uh, I expanded Love's Opening Night for some resubmission, mm-hmm. which is good. And the goal is to get that sent in in the coming week. Uh, basically, added two scenes to it and expanded a couple of parts in some other scenes to give myself this extra twenty five hundred words. Cool. Uh, you were reading somewhere on Mackinac this week too, and pointed out some spots. That I need to make some adjustments, so I'm going to work on that. I uh, got an extension on that, so now I'll submit at the end of July instead of the end of June. And that way that could just be a better story. Good. Sounds like a plan. It is a plan. <laughs> also finished off an awesome book this week um, from Michael Vance Gurley. It's called The Long Season. And it's a hockey book, so you know I love my hockey books. Uh, this one's set in 1926-1927. And it sits around the formation of the Chicago Blackhawks. Uh, the Blackhawks' name is not given outright because mm-hmm. you know none of, the, none of the NHL franchises are mentioned in this book, but it's obviously set in that era. Um, you've got uh, Brett, who is new, brand new to Chicago, having been drafted out of his hometown in Wisconsin, where he was a star high school player. Uh, he meets up with goalie Jean Paul who is French-Canadian. And uh, Jean-Paul has a history of being perhaps gay, but the the teams kind of ignore it because he's a damn good goalie. Mm -hmm. And if he does that stuff over there, that's fine. But as he and Brett start to uh, potentially form a relationship, uh, things get a little more tense around the locker room and on the ice and as they travel around. I loved this book so much. Um, there's a f- review of it on jeffandwill.com that we'll link to in the show notes. Uh, plus, Michael will join us uh, in the coming weeks uh, to talk about the book in depth, which I'm looking forward to. Uh, that book does come out this week, June 14th. Um, and if you are in Illinois, where he lives, uh, he's actually doing an event that we'll link up to in the show notes because I was silly and didn't write it in my script that it's happening, but we'll link up to it. So if you're in that area, you can actually go see him. Uh, talk about the book, read from the book, and even get your own signed copy. 
Cool. Yeah. Time now for the GRL Guest Author Spotlight. We're happy to welcome Jenna Scott to the podcast as part of the official 2016 GRL blog tour. Born and raised in Texas, Jenna is a transplant to Missouri long enough ago she should probably consider that her hometown, but she will forever be a Texan. She loves to write any story that will make a reader smile, laugh, and maybe even cry. Whatever the next story she writes is, there will always be love and romance in the midst of trials and turmoil. Thanks for being with us, Jenna. Thanks for having me. Yeah, our pleasure. So, your latest book is Evan's Luck, uh, which you co-wrote with H. Sterling. Tell us a little bit about that book and how you two came up with the idea. Um, Evan's Luck is centered around the rodeo. It's the first in a new series that we're doing. Um, this one is kind of a second chance romance, if you will. Um, Evan and Spencer know each other through Spencer's adopted brother, Ross. Um, and Spencer's gone off to college, he's back, he's taken over the family business, and Evan is working his way up the rodeo circuit. So, um, together they, they meet up on the circuit because Spencer's family is stock contractors, so they're out on the same circuit that Evan runs. And that's how they meet, um, well, they've met before, but that's how they really get to know each other. And, um... Evan is really kind of the love them and leave them type. So Spencer's a little hesitant when he first gets the idea that maybe Evan might be interested in something more than a very basic friendship. So it's a second chance, friends to lovers, rodeo, some really hot cowboys, and it's a lot of fun. It's really hard to go wrong with hot cowboys, I think, anytime. I agree. It, it is hard to go wrong with those. The more the merrier. Absolutely. How'd you come up with the idea? Well, you know, we actually, um, we were sitting at Starbucks brainstorming what she and I could write together. We both live here in Kansas City. And uh, we were just brainstorming and we both like rodeo. We both very country, um, love cowboys. And as we started plotting, the idea came together and that Evan's Luck was born. What's it like working with a co-author? You know, that in itself can be entertaining and frustrating and helpful and just about every emotion you can find. Um, writing is hard enough. Adding a second person in there, there's a lot of twists and turns you have to work out together. I've been fortunate enough with... Um, my co-author, and this isn't the first one I've co-authored, but I've been fortunate enough that I've been friends with both the people I've co-authored with. So that's really helped. We get along really well, and we don't have a hard time telling each other when we don't like an idea. Uh, our writing styles are actually pretty different. I'm more on the steamy side. She's more on the sweet side. But for Evan's luck, it played out because each of the characters kind of portrayed Evan's more steamy, Spencer's more sweet, so we were able to mesh them and really make them work well. That's cool. Give us an idea of what your process was for writing together. We actually, we would write a thousand words, 1,500 words, a chapter, chapter and a half, and then give it to the other person to edit, to add to, to revise it, and then start and then pick up from there. 
about once a week. Every other week we'd meet at Starbucks and brainstorm where we were going to go and kind of outline for that week what we wanted to work on. Text messages, a lot. Um, we used Dropbox so that we could each access the, the, the manuscript and we didn't have to be sitting at our computer. We could really do it from anywhere. There are plenty of times I was sitting at the day job and I pulled up the file and was texting her and wrote as we were talking it through. So we really meshed our, the whole story. We didn't do like she wrote one chapter and I wrote one chapter or she wrote one character and I wrote one character. We just bounced ideas off of each other and wrote the whole book as a combined effort. Were you fully plotted when you started, or it, it kind of sounded like you kind of evolved the plot as you guys kept going? Oh yeah, we neither one of us are plot. We don't we don't plot a lot. Um, we plot just the very basics, and about halfway through, the entire plot changed. So we just picked up where we were, and for each new section or new scene that we wanted to do, we'd work it out together so that we were on the same page. But other than that, we definitely did not plot it from the beginning. That's impressive. Did you? So there, but there was never an instance where it's like, I'm sending Luke to New York City, or Evan rather. I'm not sending Evan to New York City, and here you go, go write that. No, we didn't have that, fortunately. Well, that's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, I can't say that we didn't that I didn't open it up a few times and go, ah. Oh. I hadn't thought about that, but nine times out of ten when I did that, it worked out really well. So, And I'm sure she did the same thing when she opened it to read what I had written. That's excellent. That's excellent. So Evan's Luck is book one in the Writing the Circuit series. What have you guys got planned as the series continues, and how far do you think it will go? We know of three books for sure. Uh, we would love to write six books, give or take. Um, the next one is actually a male, male, female, and you meet the female character of the book at the end of Evan's Luck, um, Shana's Ride. It is scheduled to be out in August, and I'm hoping to have both Evan's Luck and Shana's Ride available at GRL. Um, and it's, for the most part, the series is going to be, it's set on the rodeo, hence riding the circuit. It's going to be about the trials of just having a relationship on the circuit, which can be hard enough, especially with all the love them and leave them types, not to mention the stereotypes in the, in the um, rodeo world. So that's, it, it, that's basically what this series is going to be about. Um, Ross Quinn, Spencer's brother, will be book number three, and his is going to be a gay for you book. So. He's, he's, not, he's not prepared for what he's going to encounter whenever we get to that one. Okay. So that'll be a fun trip for him. Awesome. And what's next for you as a solo writer? I am working on a couple of female, female books. I've got one that I'm getting rights back from that I'm going to add to it, probably double it, and then republish it, and then a second book to follow that one. It's... I love that series because it's set in, each book is set on a remote island. The first one's set in Bora Bora. The second one is going to be set in Fiji. So I get to do a lot of research for the sun and beach and crystal blue waters and all of that 
fantasy vacations. That sounds delightful, just just as a writing exercise. It is. <laughs> any projected dates for when those will be out? No, I don't have any on those because of, right now we're working on Shana's ride to get that one out, and then I'm working on these other two on the side. Okay. And what are you looking forward to at GRL this year? This will actually be my first one. So oh, I'm awesome. kind of looking forward to everything. And it sounds like it's right there in your backyard, too. It is. It's literally 15 minutes from home. So it'll be nice to be at home and still be able to go. And I can't, I've met a few of the people at um, different conferences, and I can't wait to see them and then meet a bunch of new people as well. And of course, as the native, you're going to have to tell the rest of us where we should be going if we go off campus. I will say the one thing everyone has to try once they get here is barbecue. Any particular barbecue you want to give a shout out to? I'm a fan of Jack Stack Barbecue, and then there's um, there's another one called Plowboys, but it's a, it's a little ways away. Jack Stack's downtown, and it's it's good. All right. Uh, well, we will have to check that out, because I, I, I do love good barbecue myself, so I am looking forward to seeing what Kansas City has. Well, there's a Jack Stack right down the street from the hotel, just about within walking distance. Perfect. So what's the best way that uh, people can keep up with you online and check out your work? Facebook and Twitter are probably the most common places to find me. Um, my website has all of my book information and links for all the books that I have out. Um, but if you want to talk to me and just chat me up, Facebook is definitely the place to be. All right. Well, we will link to all that stuff in our show notes. And uh, we look forward to seeing you in Kansas City in a few months. Absolutely. You can follow the GRL blog tour by going to gayromlit.com slash 2016 blog tour. So this past week, uh, the author earnings report came out, and I thought it'd be interesting to go into this a little bit because we are for authors and readers, and I think this is an interesting bit of data. It does come out monthly uh, that gives you an idea on kind of what it's like to try to make a living as an author. Uh, in this month's report, uh, they did, they cut across a million titles on Amazon, which represents 200,000 authors as a cross-section of this data. And again, it is only Amazon data. And what it does is it looks at the average distribution of yearly income uh, as it sat in, in the second quarter of 2016. Uh, and 9,900 authors were in the making more than, ten, uh, sorry, more than $10,000 a year uh, from earnings on Amazon. And each bracket up from there seemed to cut that number down by half. So by the time you're in the $100,000 plus bracket a year, there's only 1,340 authors in that bracket. And of course, when you start with only 9,900 in the 10K plus bracket, you're looking at the other 190,000 authors under $10,000 a year. It's not easy making a living at this. Mm -hmm. And I, I think we all kind of know that. Um, it's, it's interesting to me, you know, that it kind of ties back to the essay that Brandon Witt wrote a couple weeks ago and what his income looks like. It certainly resonates with the authors that we see on Facebook who, you know, their, their thing against piracy is that they make so little anyway. And this certainly sheds light on how little uh, can be made. Um, so cheers to everybody who keeps living the dream and writing their books. Mm-hmm. Your thoughts on, on this piece of data? Well, I want to 
make a quick correction um, okay. before we continue. Hugh Howie and Data Guy put the report out. It's uh, quarterly, not monthly. And um, <clears throat> if you've never actually, um, especially for any of the authors who are listening, um, you should definitely uh, go take a look at what each of these reports offer. Um, it's uh, They dig so incredibly deep. It is so... Um, uh, detail. They scrape the numbers uh, in such a, a detailed way. Um, you could spend hours digging through all of the information and mm-hmm. all of the charts that they have. Um, it's uh, The report is incredibly detailed. So if you want to know what's going on in the world of self-publishing, um, these are the guys who are going to tell you. Um, uh, so I think this, uh, month's, uh, this report specifically, uh, just continues to, um, uh, reinforce, uh, that's the word I was looking for, reinforce, uh, something that we already know. It's that, uh, people who are willing to put in the work, uh, and do the, the, self-publishing thing um while it is hard work you can make a living uh it is essentially the new mid list um and uh traditionally published authors uh have it a whole lot worse um Mm -hmm. there are there have been a whole lot um uh a whole lot of reports and articles about the 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 rise of the bookstore and you know print print isn't dead rah 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 all that stuff um but um if you even just you know look at just the the simplest data um that's all hyperbole uh and it's all due to one thing adult coloring books the reason bookstores made money in 2015 is adult coloring books. The reason print had a, you know, quote unquote resurgence was adult coloring books. Um, traditional publishing is still uh, going downhill. <laughs> they haven't fixed that problem. Uh, and brick and mortar stores are still having a d- difficult time despite the income from, you know, adult coloring books. Um, so this, uh, particular report hasn't really revealed anything new. Right. I, I liked what was in this report and how it kind of broke the income down. Mm-hmm. And also one of the things it does, if you go look at this report, uh, and mm-hmm. we'll link to, uh, the passivevoice.com to the post, uh, directly where this came from. Uh, but there's interesting charts there that show when authors entered the business, whether they're traditionally published or, yeah. Yeah. or, indie published or some variants in in between all that it's it's a fascinating read uh, and we highly recommend it uh, for the authors in our audience or for the readers who just want to see how this business breaks down uh, another one to look at uh, on her creative pen podcast this week Joanna Penn who's a thriller author as well as a nonfiction author released her her own earning figures that date from May 2015 through April of 2016 she made 95,000 in book sales. Uh, and that represented selling 4,667 books, 
with 56% of her books sold on Amazon. She's a very big believer in wide distribution and not being exclusive. And she'll tell you point blank on her podcast and in her blog post that some of her biggest successes come off of Kobo and iBooks. Mm-hmm. Um, she has nine novels, nine fiction novels, three fiction novellas, and four box sets of her fiction. And in nonfiction, she has four full-length books and three shorter ones uh, to give you an idea of how many books she has in the market. Uh, you can see her entire breakdown at thecreativepen.com on her blog, and we'll link directly to that post in the show notes for episode 36 mm-hmm. uh, for us also. Cool. Uh, fascinating reading uh, for the authors to kind of help you keep in perspective kind of where you may sit in this grand world and some good tips, too, on maybe how to keep going forward. Exactly. We have a birthday to mention this week. I feel like I should have confetti to throw. Yay! <laughs> uh, and party hats. And party hats. Uh, today we are taping this episode on the... 12th of June. 12th of June. Today is Irwin Allen's 100th birthday. And uh, some of you... Uh, <laughs> some of you may be asking, well, who the hell is Irwin Allen and why do I care that he was a uh, hundred years old. I hope that's very few of you in the audience because <laughs> that too. would be very sad. You all need to know who Irwin Allen is. A uh, quick recap of who Irwin Allen was in the world of entertainment. He was a director-producer who in the 1950s um, uh, gained notoriety for doing a series of uh, uh very successful uh, nature documentaries. There was The Sea Around Us. And there was also The Animal World, which is mainly remembered today for the segment about uh, the prehistoric era that was animated by Ray Harryhausen. And then uh, in the 60s, he moved from the big screen to the small screen. Uh, many of us will remember some of the amazing television he did during the 60s, including Lost in Space, The Time Tunnel, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, and Land of the Giants. Uh, Then in the 70s, he transitioned back to the big screen and became the father of what would, uh, the genre we would now call uh, disaster movies. He did the Poseidon Adventure. He followed that up with the Towering Inferno. Uh, So during his career, he gave us a whole lot of really amazing, uh, outrageous stuff to love and enjoy. Uh, And I am very thankful (laughs) for Irwin Allen. I have been a a fan of his work ever since I was a little kid. I remember uh, watching Lost in Space in the afternoons. Yep. Our uh, our local station ran in that in syndication for years and years. I grew up watching Lost in Space, yeah. and then uh, later fell in love with some of his uh, uh, wonderful, crazy all star movies. So, what would you say your favorite of his body of work is? I really I love Poseidon Adventure and The Towering Inferno, um, but not for uh, the reasons most people might think. I think those two movies specifically which sort of you know kick-started the whole disaster genre are very very good they're not as campy as people might give them credit for uh uh there are some very uh shall we say large performances 
specifically in a Poseidon Adventure when like Gene Hackman and Ernest Borgnine go at one another. There's there's really nothing subtle going on there. But um, <laughs> but those are two um, really excellent uh, movies. Um, my personal favorites uh, of the disaster movies that he made, uh, I really enjoy When Time Rent Out, mm. which came out in 1980, which was the very tail end of the disaster movie craze. Um, that ship had essentially sailed, but this movie came out at the very, very end, and every single disaster movie cliche uh, is jam-packed into this one ridiculous movie about... A volcano exploding uh, next to a Hawaiian resort filled with um, every movie star Irwin Allen worked with throughout his entire career. Pretty much. It's a wonderful, ridiculous, (laughs) amazing movie, and I highly recommend you see it if you get a chance. I also want to mention really, really quick, I have a a soft spot for the movie The Swarm, mm-hmm. which is um, generally classified as a disaster movie, but really it is Irwin Allen's take on sort of nature run amok. In the 1970s, um, there were two separate genres. There was the disaster movies, and then there were um, the sort of angry animal or killer animal <laughs> movies that grew out of the success of Jaws. So in the intersection between the killer animal movies and disaster movies, there was sort of uh, nature run amok, uh, which kind of uh, encompassed all the most ridiculous aspects of both the genres into one amazing subgenre. I think The Swarm kind of falls into that uh, one category, um, it is super duper ridiculous. Uh, it's pretty awesome though. It is. It is high, high camp. Um, it's really, really amazing. Um, Michael Caine tries to figure out why bees are attacking this uh, Texas town, specifically filled with all sorts of old movie stars like Olivia De Havilland and Patty Duke and uh, just a gazillion other people. Uh, it's really, really amazing. Um, it also stars, um, I can't think of her name right now. Lots of people. A whole whole bunch of people. Anyway, so I highly recommend seeing The Swarm. Those are, uh, one of my favorites. So we will link, we'll do a couple links on the show notes. We'll, we'll link up to some Robert Allen movies off of Amazon. And we'll also link up to your blog post write-ups from Cool Cinema Trash. Yeah. Uh, for the Irwin Allen movies. Mm -hmm. Uh, so June is audiobook month, for those of you who did not know. Uh, and we're celebrating that with an interview with voiceover artist Derek McLean, uh, who we met at the Dreamsbitter conference back in March. We liked his story, so we wanted to talk to him. So here's that interview. Today we welcome voiceover artist Derek McLean to the podcast. After eight years of public speaking and live oral interpretation of literature, Derek made the jump to voicing audiobooks. He describes himself as passionate about romance of all types and so far has released 13 audiobooks since he began, including books by Josh Lanyon, Amber Kell, Andrew Gray, and others. His latest release is T.J. Clune's How to Be a Normal Person, which he calls a career milestone for himself. Thanks for being here, Derek. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So tell us, what was your path towards becoming a voiceover artist for DreamSpinner? Well, I'd always... Sort of my whole life, I've always had something of an interest in voiceover acting and audiobooks in particular. 
um, as a kid, my mom and I used to joke about half joke about one day potentially doing audiobooks together because we'd listen to them all the time. But I never had really any idea how to get into it. Um, I didn't even know where to find the proper door to put my foot in. So it was always just kind of in the back of my mind is something that I liked the idea of, but had no idea how to actually do. And then uh, life just kind of guides us sometimes. I ended up moving to Tallahassee for college um, probably about four years ago and never ended up really moving away. When I went to college, I started volunteering at my church as a youth pastor, essentially. After I graduated from college, I actually started working at church in um, the full role of, of youth ministry director. So what does that have to do with audiobooks? Well, uh, three of our our boys in the, the program, their mother actually used to be um, the youth director a couple um, directors past, and I got to know her pretty well, and she stepped down from the position because she had started up a little publishing uh, outfit, and it started taking off and doing really well, and her name is Elizabeth North, and the publishing outfit was Dream Spinner Press. So when I found myself needing a little bit um, of a supplement to my income, I asked her if she had any odd jobs I might be able to help out with. She connected me with Andrew Gray. I started uh, proofing audiobooks for Dream Spinner, and it really just rekindled this uh, that that old thought and that old passion for for narration. Except now I knew how to get into it. So finally, I went ahead and got a microphone and got set up and gave it a try and. That was a little over a year ago now, and this has become my full-time career. So for the folks who are watching our video feed, they're gonna, they see you in your studio. Did this used to be a closet or some other yes. small space? Yes, this was a closet. And when I very first started out, I had just a, a little USB microphone, um, and um, this was an active closet. It had some clothes in the back, some blankets, and I had a few, um, a, a few pieces of studio foam that I had put up for, for sound absorption. And that was my first sort of trial space. Can I, can I actually make it through a book? Can I actually do this? And, um, after the first couple contracts and the first couple successful releases, that's when I decided to go all in and um, had a massive remodel. And so now um, this is a full soundproof booth, tore out the walls, put in special insulation, double layer drywall with this green glue in between um, and really just, just invested and in got a professional microphone and got all set up so that um, I can really give the titles that I get to bring to life um, the best that they deserve. Nice. So where did the passion for the romance novels come from? Well, there's this, this, this big sort of misconception about romance that's out there. And it's this, this idea that romance is just basically porn for middle-aged housewives. And I know that that's a, a misconception because I'm ashamed to say I used to think that that's all that romance was. 
And I had never even considered opening up uh, a, a romance novel until uh, I started actually audio proofing for Dream Spinner. And I think the very first book that I did proofing for was Reese Ford's uh, Sinner's Gin, uh, which is narrated by Tristan James. Um, <clears throat> and it was just extraordinary. It was nothing like what I expected. And since then, as I've you know obviously read many more romance novels and narrated some that aren't gay romance uh, as well, I've, I've really come to appreciate it. And what you get in, in general fiction, you almost always have some kind of romantic subplot and it's there in the background. It's not the main thing, but, but we follow it and we care about the characters and we want them to come together. Um, and, and romance that's, that's somewhat flipped that romantic subplot becomes the main plot and then the subplot is the detective mystery or the werewolves fighting for territory or the space pirates. But, but your main focus becomes on, on that romantic relationship. But one of the biggest things for me is that in, in fiction, when we have these romantic subplots, we don't really get the full picture because it's just the subplot. It's you don't get into the characters and you don't get into what they're really feeling and when you always fade to black, you can miss some of the most pivotal moments in that. And so what I've found it to be is just incredibly compelling because you still have all of these exciting main storylines, but the focus is simply shifted on something that's actually more relatable. It's on that person's individual struggle to, to find and succeed at love. And um, so I just, I don't know, I love it. <laughs> a hopeless romantic. Yeah. <laughs> so you said that uh, how to do how to be a normal person from from TJ Klune was a, a career milestone. Why is that? Um, well, of course, first and foremost, TJ is is a wonderfully brilliant and and very well accomplished and appropriately loved author. Um, and it's always great to be able to um, have the opportunity to narrate just really really high quality works. But TJ was sort of extra special for me because when I was very first thinking about actually giving this a try and, uh, his, his books, um, tell me it's real was the very first book that I ever attempted to record an audition for. Um, and I, I sort of wrote about this at length on, on my blog, but basically, yeah, the short story is that it was the very first book that I ever tried to audition for. It was the absolute worst audition that I've ever recorded in my life. I spent hours just re-recording it, and it was miserable. And then sort of as things went going, that always sort of stuck with me. And I kept auditioning for every T.J. Klune book that came up, and it it sort of naturally became this this milestone for me because his books are highly sought after by narrators. And so to to have that honor of 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 narrating one of TJ's books really for me exemplified that um uh, where I've gotten to and um inspires me for where I could be heading so towards that end like what's the next milestone that you have your eyes set on um next is probably honestly just a couple minor almost boring milestones um there's uh so the way that, for those who, who don't know, for um, 
the audiobook productions of books by independent authors or small and niche publishers, um, there's this sort of marketplace. Um, it's called the Audiobook Creation Exchange or ACX.com. And so independent audiobook narrators and producers like myself go on there and we look for books to audition for. Um, and authors and publishers can post up titles open for auditions. And they have um, a status called Audible Approved for those narrators and producers who have produced a certain number of titles of a certain set quality. And uh, I haven't yet gotten that that little stamp of approval, um, partly just because of the the quantity of books. Um, I've been pretty, pretty selective about the books that I take. So that's really the sort of the next milestone for me is getting that audible approved stamp and um, just seeing where I go from there. So what draws you to a book to audition? First and foremost is just the financial. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a business decision to start with. Um, books are obviously offered at a number of different different rates and um, payment options. And so because I do this full time, uh, it can't all be passion projects. But once you sort of whittle that down, then for me, it's really trying to find the books that I feel are going to be a great match for me, for my voice and my narrative style. And of course, um, the more that it sounds like I would be interested in reading the book, the easier it becomes to really delve into it as a narrator. So the more I'm drawn to that. Um, I'm absolutely miserable at most accents. So I tend to avoid books that take place in Australia or England or really anywhere other than just general U.S. Um, I, I pass those along to, to Joel Leslie and Greg Tremblay. Um, but... Um, but yeah, and especially anything that's got real kind of that that mix of of tough guy characters, but also that that vulnerability. I'm always kind of drawn to stories that have a real personal development arc in addition to that romantic connection arc. Nice. Okay. So is there something in some like general guidance that like makes a book good for audio as opposed to something that might not translate as well in your view? Um, I will say one thing that definitely does not translate well in audio that I haven't had to, to deal with, but I've heard of other narrators struggling with this is um, in some mystery or, or detective style books, you might have one of the, the speakers being the murderer being the person whose reveal is at the very end of the book, but you have their voice. And so titles like that, where there's supposed to be some kind of mystery, but the character is speaking. And so you can, in, in audio, it's very difficult to translate that in a way that doesn't just give it away, uh, right from the first chapter. Um, but generally speaking, anything that's, that's got a lot of, um, that's dialogue driven, even if it's even if it's just internal dialogue, but it, it lends itself to that that deeper characterization and, and where you really want to hear the characters and hear the full emotion beyond just the words that they're saying, but how they're saying those words and how those come across. Um, 
those are your gold winners. Is a first person <clears throat> is a first person POV book easier than a third? Um, I generally prefer a deep third POV, um, because with with that deep third, you still get a lot of that internal dialogue and a lot of those. Uh, you still get a lot of emotion. It's not this detached, um, omniscient narrator. Um, which even the sidebar, even if it is detached, distant third person narration, it's it's never appropriate to narrate a book absolutely monotone going through that. So, you know, even even nonfiction books, you want to bring life to it. You want to bring meaning to it. You want to bring that proper inflection. Um, the challenge sometimes with with first person is that um separating the the exposition the narrative from the actual dialogue so you end up having to basically create these two different character voices one that's a little bit subdued so that as a listener you can tell the difference between you know internal thoughts and spoken word because that can that can actually be a big challenge i guess the question that i kind of get to from that is how did you learn to do this, if you will? Is it just like is it those years of listening to audiobooks with your mom or just getting into it and going for it? Or Oh, there's a number of things. So um, most, most audiobook narrators come from a background in acting. Um, most of them have had varying degrees of success and training in, in stage and screen acting. And they bring that experience and that skill set and that knowledge to audiobook narration. Um, I went to theater camp once in middle school and um, it was a, it was a musical. And so everybody who was at the theater camp had to um, was automatically in the play, but they had us sing uh, tomorrow. It was, it was Annie Warbucks. And I got maybe three words into the song and they all stopped me and said, that's enough. And I was given the only role in the entire play that didn't have to sing. And that kind of traumatized me from acting. But my background, um, I come from a public speaking and in college I did forensics, which was a lot of, um, it's that oral interpretation of literature. It's kind of like reader's theater. And that gave me a, a set of starting baseline skills that, that I brought into it. But since then, um, I've been, um, I did some coaching with Sean Allen Pratt, who is, um, very, very well accomplished and awarded audiobook narrator, um, has been doing this professionally has, I think now over 800 titles, uh, to his name. And so I did, I've done some private one-on-one -on -one coaching with him. Um, but one of the other really awesome things about the narrator, um, sort of life is, is the community that exists. And I, I think I at first expected it to be, um, not a very friendly community because we're, we're out there and we're competing for titles. Um, we're auditioning against each other, but in fact, it's a very, very supportive community. I think not dissimilar to, to probably author communities where we have our, our sort of closed Facebook groups and we're able to, ask each other for advice and, and communicate about different things and, um, complain about certain things behind closed doors. And, and so 
sort of a mix of all of those things. What I've already come up with, the the coaching that I've been getting, and um, just having those connections has been um, hugely beneficial. Okay, makes sense. So you mentioned the tough guy role when you were talking about you know the the things to 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 voice. Do you have a favorite character type to portray? My absolute fair, favorite character type um, would probably really be someone who's uh, a, a little bit awkward and a little bit insecure and um, gets to grow through the process of that. And that's probably because that's closest to how I see myself. Um, and it also allows a, a bit more variance in, in voicing. Um, I, I do enjoy, I do enjoy your, your more stoic, tough guys. They can be, they can be extra pleasurable sometimes to narrate, especially when they're being particularly sexy. Um, but they can also be challenging sometimes because, um, once you get into that, that, that deep, rough, tough guy voice, it's really tough to then show this huge range of emotion. Um, so sometimes I can have some, some pretty awkward takes with them. What about characters that are difficult? You mentioned the accents being a thing, but accents. Yeah. I, um, I did Josh Lanyon, um, has a, a two novella set, uh, that's combined in audio that I did, uh, dark horse, white knight. And I didn't realize when I auditioned for it, cause I generally avoid if I, see that there's major accents in an audition or it takes place in a foreign country. I'll kind of go, well, not for me. And in white night, um, they're, um, one of the main characters is, is an actor and they're filming in Wales. So not only is it an accent, but it's, it's a Welsh accent and Welsh accents are, are particularly challenging and there's a huge range of them. And I remember I, I spent, two days just reviewing videos and accent books and talking to friends. And I recorded all these things and sent them to Josh and, um, and finally just settled on, on very slight, slight accent and just said, please don't hate me for this. But, um, but yeah, so accents are challenging to me. Um, women are always, um, an obvious sort of unique challenge because, um, obviously I don't, I don't sound like a woman. Um, and what's important to remember for narrators voicing the opposite gender is that you're not going to sound exactly like that gender. And so, um, you've got to avoid that, that, that obviously fake falsetto that will just disturb all the, all the readers and all the listeners and, and instead just, you know, take a little softer and, 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 and find that, that point that gives that hint, um, but it's still sometimes a challenge, particularly if there's um, um, multiple multiple people who are all women or who all have accents and who all have very sort of similar voices and trying to figure out how to give them all something unique so that they do stand out in in the production. Mm-hmm. Does that make big cast books in general more difficult? Yes. Um, although generally it's, you know, it's a, it's a welcome difficulty. Um, the, the biggest challenge is when you have a section where you have a group of characters who all have dialogue. And especially if it's, you know, you've got six 
men who are all farmers, who are all between the age of 20 and 30, who are all from the same area um, and have the same education level and the same background and, and coming up with those, you know, how, how do I make this character distinct to where the listener isn't confused about who's speaking without turning them into caricatures or um, making them otherwise sound inauthentic or making a, a voice decision that's inauthentic to, to what's been described in, in the writing. Mm-hmm. And I guess to that end too, what kind of, I guess, notes do you take or preparation for having a character, you know, who shows up in chapter two and then voicing him again in like chapter 25 to remember what he sounded like back there. Do you just re-listen that day to when you know that to remember where he was? Well, there's, there's two things with that. And, and one is that when I very first, um, get, get the, the script for an audiobook. Um, before I ever record a single line, I sit down and I'm reading through the entire book and I keep, I keep notes and, and I'll mark down every single character that has even, even a single word of dialogue and, and then also record any, um, all the sort of notes about their, their character, their personality. If there's any explicit description of their voice, of course I write that down. Um, but also all the sort of character traits and background and history that then helps sort of inform those characterization choices. Then I finally learned that while I'm going through and recording a book at the very first time that every character speaks, um, after I record their dialogue, I'll go back and I'll, I'll export, um, just a small snippet of, um, of a line that they said. And I'll save that on my desktop with the character's name. So that then when they come up 25 chapters later, I'm not trying to scan through that previous chapter, trying to find where they spoke. I can just listen to that clip, <clears throat> speak along with it, um, getting the voice accurate again, and then, and then pick up from there. And that's been an invaluable tool in, in maintaining consistency. Nice. So the question I'm sure all of our listeners have are sex scenes awkward or difficult to narrate? Um, they they can be. Um, the the most universal awkward thing with sex scenes is um, single word uh, exclamations. Um, I've had you know finding the the right way to say oh 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 like you've got to you got to experiment and figure out exactly how to do it. And it can be sometimes that can that can be fun sometimes, but on a bigger level, a lot of people who are new to, to audiobook narration are very hesitant about books with sexual content. Um, especially if they haven't read, uh, if that's not the sort of books that they, they typically read. And, um, for me, I generally don't, don't find it particularly awkward or challenging. And part of it really goes back to what I love so much about romance because, Again, when you have when you have a romantic subplot in in a general fiction book, um, they always they fade to black, and and it's really almost this disservice to the reader because in in real life, sex is never just sex. There's always something more going on there. 
And it's an experience of, of incredible vulnerability and it can be an experience of, of incredible connection. And, you know, in, in my life, in my relationships, oftentimes those, those first few sexual encounters really embody these, these turning points in, in those relationships. And you get the same thing in, in romance, in romance books. And, and, and for me, this is part of how I sort of differentiate between romance and erotica differently than, than most people I think do. Um, oftentimes I hear that, oh, well the difference between romance and erotica is how much sex there is. Erotica is filled with sex and romance, you know, I might have a couple sex scenes and, and, and I've, for, for me, it's more about not the quantity of the sex, but but the quality and the nature of those sexual scenes. So in romance, there's always something more. There's always a purpose to that sexual content. And and it can be as simple as um, in, in Eastern Cowboy by by Andrew Gray, there's there's a masturbation scene. And it's a very sort of sexy, erotic, you know, big manly farmer guy um, taking care of himself. But what we see as we're going through that is his internal thought process. What we see is his, his starting out with his go-to fantasy, but then his, his mind wanders to, to this new guy that he's met. And, and there's something more there. And, and so in, in romance, I sort of embrace those sex scenes because there is more to tell and there is something more going on there. And, and it's, when you don't have that, when you just fade to black, you can miss that. And so I really appreciate that. Erotica, on the other hand, will oftentimes just sort of be sex for sex sake. And sometimes that can get awkward for me because it's, it is missing that something. It's missing that something else. Okay. And that, that I, I understand the, the kind of designation you've got going on there. It makes a lot of sense. Did you ever think when you were a youth minister that you would end up doing this kind of work? I mean, I can't well, imagine that was on the career path. Obviously. I mean, uh, to keep in mind, I mean, uh, Elizabeth was, was an active parent and she was a, she was involved in very similar position and there was no sort of hiding about, um, about the publishing company and, and the content that it produced. Um, a lot of people get really, surprised and confused when, when I talk about church and gay romance and in the same, same sentence. Uh, so obviously our church is, is a bit liberal about these things. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I honestly, I was actually, um, working towards becoming a minister. Um, that's why I went to college was to, to get the degree I needed before going to ministerial school. But, um, just sort of through the course of life, I, I realized that um, ministry just wasn't really the right path for me, which was shocking to me because it's what I'd been working towards for so long. And I'd spent a number of years traveling and speaking at different churches and, and youth retreats. And um, gay romance was almost this, and, and romance and audiobooks in general became this surprise safety net where all of a sudden I sort of had no idea what I was going to do with myself. And then this old dream came back and uh, it's just fallen into place. So what's coming up next for you? What can, what can your, your fans look for? Um, 
I'm searching for some things right now. Um, I do have a couple um, ultra short um, titles that I decided to to play around with, um, and then I'm currently speaking to um, an author who's based in New Zealand um, about taking some of some of her books into into audio. Um, she's been previously unable to do it because of ACX's contracts. Um, but I'm working with another, um, producer friend of mine who has a small publishing house, but I can't talk too much about that project just yet. Cause it's, it's in the works, but it is, uh, it is an MM, uh, gay romance shifter. And, uh, I, I will admit I, I enjoy my, I enjoy my werewolves. Okay. Be, and I guess there's fun. a question we actually had to ask that you're, you're talking about like in the werewolves. What do you like to read most in MM? And I won't put you on the spot, like necessarily with authors per se, but in general, in terms of like various tropes and such. I have, I have, I, I do have fun with, with werewolves, which I wasn't originally expecting, but, um, there's just something fun about that alpha male werewolf, um, pursuing that gay relationship. And it, it more than any of the other, um, more than any of the other tropes, it, it almost accentuates one of the other things that I love so much about gay romance, which is having these masculine, tough male heroes who are gay men. And as a gay man myself, it's really, really so wonderful to see these gay characters who aren't, who aren't cliches, who aren't stereotypes, who, um, who, you know, there is this, this big diversity and, and this, this broad range of things. Um, and, and so that's, that's fun for me. All right. So what's the best place uh, that people can keep up with you online to find out what is coming next when it, when you have announcements? The, the, the best place is generally Facebook. Um, that's where I spend way too much time. Um, Although I am also on Twitter and I try to keep up with my website. Um, pretty much all of it is Voice of Derek. If you Google Voice of Derek, D-E-R-R-I-C-K, um, you'll basically find most of my, most of my online presence. Um, but I do tend to be um, very, active, <clears throat> very active on Facebook. Right, very good. Anything else you want to tell the listeners before we uh, let you get back to your 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 recordings of the day? Uh, uh, thanks for listening, and uh, and and if you don't regularly listen to audiobooks already, give it a try. Um, nothing like like being productive while you get to listen to a book and uh, just maximize your your reading consumption. So we had a lot to talk about with Derek, and we've got bonus content this week. So check out the podcast feed and the YouTube feed for the bonus track, where we'll talk about his process for recording, how long it usually takes him to record a book, plus what his collaborations are with the authors that he works with. That sounds good. So I think that's going to do it for this episode. I think so. Coming up next week in episode number 37, Carrie Pack will be here as part of the 2016 GRL blog tour. Plus Lisa from The Novel Approach offers up some book recommendations. Yeah, it's going to be good stuff. Hope you all have a good week. Thank you for listening to Jeff and Will's Big Gay Fiction Podcast. New episodes are available every Monday at iTunes and other major podcast outlets. While there, subscribe to the show and please consider leaving a review. 
For detailed show notes, links, and to sign up for the monthly newsletter, visit BigGayFictionPodcast.com. Bye.